This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, girls' education in Afghanistan. Sola, the School of Leadership Afghanistan, is a unique girls' boarding school in Kabul. And of course, girls' education in Afghanistan may be endangered as the United States negotiates with the Taliban to pull American forces out of the country after 17 years of war. We'll speak with the founder of the school, Shabana Basij Rajik, about the past, the future, and the present of girls' ed- education in Afghanistan. Also, later in this hour, Melania, victim or accomplice. Amy Willens will review the situation. First up, we have so many problems with Joe Biden. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, Democratic candidates debated climate change last night on CNN and were especially interested in what the frontrunner in the polls, Joe Biden, had to say. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. So the problems with Joe Biden... Where should we begin before maybe before we get to Biden and climate policy? Maybe we should talk about Biden and labor. He says he's devoted his entire life to fighting for the working man. How about lately? Well, you know, there's a a wealth of uh, policies coming out of other Democratic candidates, uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders, in terms of you know, public sector uh, uh, increased spending to give people more work in terms of putting workers on boards of directors of corporations. We don't hear anything quite this specific uh, from uh, from Joe Biden. Uh, and uh, there's one thing going on in California right now, which I've, I've been writing about. Uh, the, the most important piece of legislation that is pending before any of the 50 state legislatures right now is a bill in California called Assembly Bill 5, AB5, which would uh, conform the state's labor law to a ruling from the state Supreme Court last year, basically saying that uh, if, you're, if you're dictating the terms of work for your worker and that worker is essentially working uh, for you uh, and you are nonetheless calling this worker an independent contractor, you are misclassifying that worker, and uh, you need to reclassify the worker as an employee, and thereby, uh, you know, you have to observe laws like overtime pay, like minimum wage, and so on. Um, And uh, there are a lot of independent contractors in California. Some of them who are clearly not employees have managed to uh, get the bill to exclude them, but the drivers for Uber and Lyft and companies like that and the, the truckers at the, at the harbor who have been misclassified since forever, uh, they would definitely come under the terms of this bill. Uh, and the bill is, uh, has passed the Assembly. It has passed two committees in the state Senate. And before the Senate adjourns for the year, which will be September 13th when the legislature closes down, 
this bill will come before uh, come before the Senate, the whole Senate for a vote. Now, of the seven leading Democratic candidates, six have endorsed the bill, and they've endorsed it because it's a hugely important bill, even though it's one at the state level. Uh, with with the real capacity to remake the the gig economy, the so-called sharing economy. Boy, everything in that economy is mislabeled. An independent contractor, <laughs> yes. you're sharing. Uh, right. uh, complete misnomers for what the <laughs> what the industry is. Uh, there's been a bit a bit of a split because uh, uh, a lot of the uh, techno people in the Obama administration actually went into tech and. One of them, uh, the uh, former number three official in the uh, Justice Department under Obama, Tony West, is actually the general counsel for Uber. Wow. He's been leading this campaign against the bill. Uh, but the, the, the pressure in the Democratic Party for doing justice to these drivers is such that even Tony West's sister-in-law, who is a uh, presidential candidate named Kamala Harris, <laughs> okay. has, supported, has supported the bill. But... Uh, Strikingly absent is Joe Biden, and I, I think it's characteristic of Biden, who, you know, doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, I don't think he's raging against his bill, but, you know, I think he's trying to skate by during this whole campaign without actually taking very many hard positions. Uh, he is kind of floating on a fuzz of nostalgia. A fuzz, a fuzz of nostalgia. That's a memorable uh, phrase. So the Uber and Lyft workers are sort of the, the leading examples of so-called independent contractors who really are employees uh, of Uber and Lyft and who deserve to be covered by minimum wage and overtime pay uh, rules. You say six of the seven leading Democrats support the bill that would accomplish this in California. Joe Biden, he doesn't exactly oppose it. Is this right? He's not come out against it. Well, he just, he just hasn't said anything about it. He hasn't said uh, anything about it. But you say that there, that, the, that there are Democrats, other Democrats, who actually do oppose this bill. Uh, I guess we would call these the what the 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 Wall Street uh, uh, pro business. Well, more Silicon Valley, more Silicon Valley. There are a lot of uh, you know David Plus, who was uh, Obama's campaign manager, uh, went to work for Uber uh, uh, during Obama's second term, uh, and uh, even the uh, uh, former California Senator Barbara Boxer actually oh has weighed in in an op-ed column on Uber's behalf, uh, leading a friend of mine to ask, uh, who does she think she is, Diane Feinstein? <laughs> exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah, since Boxer was always the more liberal of the two uh, senators during their long uh, joint tenure in, uh, in the Senate. Um, so uh, th- th- there is something of a bit of a generational rift here, actually, in which you sort of have Obama-era and Clinton-era people having uh, acclimated themselves to uh, Silicon Valley, which was historically been a major donor to uh, Democratic campaigns on the one hand, uh, and uh, the current generation of Democrats who, uh, you know, have a more laboristic perspective, which is a, a growing thing and a good thing in the Democratic Party. Joe Biden is you know, among people who are responding to the current generation of Democrats because they're running for president, as he is. But he's also uh, someone who is tied to 
you know, the, not just the Democratic Party of the past, but simply the political past, and when Silicon Valley could do no wrong, or when, you know, it was possible to establish uh, bipartisan relations, which Biden has talked about, though ever since Newt Gingrich uh, began running for Speaker in 1994, the Republicans have been absolutely, completely uninterested and opposed to anything bipartisan. So I think you have to go way back uh, to find the uh, uh, the golden age that uh, uh, Joe Biden occasionally evokes on the campaign trail. So that's Joe Biden and the current legislation uh, that we need in California about uh, uh, workers. Uh, the CNN town hall on climate change last night, Biden said he'd spent his entire life fighting the polluters. Um, he did seem kind of rambling and unfocused to me. What did you think? Uh, well, honestly, this was a seven-hour uh, thing of all the <laughs> okay. candidates. And I have to say, I actually was not watching in the Joe Biden hour, I must confess. Uh, uh, but, he, you know, he's he's been giving rambling speeches with, in which facts get conflated and uh, so on. And, you know, this is, this is, this is taking a toll. I... Uh, I, I get the impression, you know, he, he's still atop most of the national polls, but I get the impression that that is sort of a, the default uh, choice of people who aren't really quite watching the campaign yet. And the people who are more closely watching the campaign uh, are going for uh, other candidates. Because, I mean, you know, Biden's calling card, as he says himself, and uh, is that he's uh, the most likely to beat Trump. But I think if you watch Biden long enough, that claim, you begin to say, this guy is the one most likely to beat Trump. He often comes off as somebody who's just sort of wandering mentally, uh, you know, in the course of his presentations, not to mention in the course of debates. So, yeah. uh, so we shall see. Well, his big argument in the debate last night was that... Uh, his experience in talking to world leaders as Obama's vice president would help him build an international coalition to fight climate change. He, he seemed to be suggesting that whatever the United States did to, uh, to limit or decarbonize, limit carbon or decarbonize uh, the economy wouldn't really matter much if the rest of the world uh, didn't uh, join us. Uh, that's not the approach that any of the other candidates uh, took. Uh, your comment. Well, no, I mean, we obviously have to take the lead as the largest economy in the world and as the economy that more than any other put the world on the uh, oil fossil fuel track. Uh, uh, now, Biden is right that, you know, the United States obviously can't be the only uh nation that does good things to mitigate uh, the climate crisis. Uh, but I might add, how, this just, has, has he looked at who the world leaders are lately? <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's, it's a shifting panoply of people who were not around when Obama was president and he was vice president. Uh, Boris Johnson, uh, the, <laughs> the, the guy who heads the new government, who is also the guy who headed the old government, but still postdating Obama in, in Italy. Um, you know, uh, it, it, I, I question uh, whether, uh, you, you know, uh, when, when Biden is talking about world leaders, I don't know if he's talking about Helmut Kohl or Helmut Schmidt or, 
he did say he would go. He would go to Brazil and say, "Enough is enough." Uh, is that a convincing argument, in your opinion? Uh, uh, no, <laughs> it's not enough. Uh, well, Vox, no, I, Vox, I mean, obvious, the, obviously, uh, we Brazil and the world has problems with the new Bolsonaro regime there, which seems to be. Uh, uh, playing a fiddle while the Amazon burns, but uh, uh, so on the one no, hand, I mean, I, on the one hand, you had uh, Joe Biden last night, the leader who seemed rambling and and unfocused and living in the past. The other old white man up there, I say that speaking as an old white man myself, uh, Bernie was incredibly sharp on top of it, at the top of his game, laying out these visionary. You might call them almost prophetic uh, goals, which we may never achieve, but which certainly are tremendously significant. Most notable to me was a plan to uh, semi-nationalize the nation's electric utilities and expand things like TVA and spend $16 trillion on all of this over over 10 years. Uh, the contrast between the two of them was was remarkable. Yeah, well, uh, Bernie is obviously someone who has aged better than Biden, and uh, Bernie's ideas, um, you know, it, it, it's it's funny. They, 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 there's the usual right-wing kerfuffle about the notion of having public control over uh, essentially public utilities, yeah. both here and in Britain. I'm a little, I'm a little befuddled. I mean, it's part of uh, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, program in Britain, too, but in, 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 in many cases... Uh, a, a great deal of the utility industry and such is already in uh, in public hands. It certainly is in Los Angeles. Yeah. The Department of Water and Power, established by middle-class progressives in the 1920s, uh, you know, is, is the uh, owner of the power company in Los Angeles. And there are versions of this in, you know, a number of cities uh, all around the country. Uh, <coughs> Bernie is, is often uh, quoted saying that uh, his form of socialism really derives from a lot of the New Deal, and the TVA uh, certainly was uh, Franklin Roosevelt's project, not Eugene V. Debs's. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the radicalism of controlling a nation's energy infrastructure doesn't strike me as all that radical. But Bernie is very specific, very pointed, very polemical, and very effective in making, uh, in making that case. If we just take a step back from the Biden problem for a minute, the whole CNN climate town hall showed just how much the Democrats have moved on climate change in just the last two or three years. Obama boasted about increasing fossil fuel production and, and having low gas prices in the United States. Climate change barely came up in the 2016 presidential race. Now, all of the Democratic candidates, including Joe Biden, are describing all the ways they would hold the fossil fuel industry accountable for its pollution and its emission. All 10 candidates want to restrict drilling on public lands. Bernie wants criminal prosecution of polluters. Kamala Harris wants to sue them. Cory Booker and Bernie say would, they would ban fracking. This is a very different Democratic Party from what it was in 2016. It is, and, you know, it's not simply on this issue. Uh, I mean, there are a couple of factors here. One is the fact that with uh, a president, uh, Donald Trump, who is our, our leading climate change denier, uh, it, it becomes 
uh, easier for Democrats to uh, take a, a more aggressive position on uh, on climate change uh, than it was under Obama, who, as you said, uh, was, uh, you know, a bit of a wuss on this. So, secondly, there, there really has been movement uh, within the party engendered in part by uh, young people, the Sunrise Movement, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, part of the, the whole millennial uh, coming of age uh, and, and playing greater weight uh, in, uh, in the Democratic uh, uh, deliberations. And that's a generation that uh, is going to have to live with uh, the severe consequences of chi- climate change longer than, uh, you know, the old guys. And that has changed uh, the party's policy on climate and on a number of economic issues and social issues as well. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson about the CNN Climate Town Hall with the Democratic candidates last night. You know, the most amazing thing to me about that CNN event last night, almost the entire event was devoted to serious policy discussion this is a real problem. What are we going to do about it? What, what, and people lay out their, their ideas and their plans. Can you imagine any set of Republicans from the White House or the Senate or the House engaging in a actual policy discussion for, you know, six or seven hours? Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, and, and not just on climate change, but uh, on anything, uh, the party has relentlessly dumbed itself down, and I don't think there are very many Republicans who are, are, are capable of just, you know, standing up for an hour and seriously discussing virtually any topic. Uh, and and uh, their worldview has been so saturated with uh, the fantasy and falsehood, I, I think it would just be, uh, just be beyond them. I might also add that CNN, uh, in, in, a, in a certain sense, was probably atoning a for the debate yes. that it's yes. which, uh, you know, essentially gave the, the, the same candidates about 30 seconds each to explain their worldview. Uh, so, you know, uh, if, if they want to continue to atone in the manner that they did last night, that's fine with me. Well, we've only got a couple minutes left here. I want to go back to this California bill about classifying workers as independent contractors or employees who get benefits and and protections. I understand that this is also an issue at the National Labor Relations Board, which was created in 1935 to protect workers from unfair labor practices. Yes, well, uh, the National Labor Relations Board, of all the federal agencies, uh, the National Labor Relations Board is the one that completely switches its positions depending on which party uh, is in power. And uh, the NLRB uh, it has uh, declared that, among other things, uh, this was just last Friday, that misclassification, misclassifying a worker is not a violation of the National Labor Relations Act. However, if you protest it and are fired, then you are covered under uh, the National <laughs> no. Labor Relations Act uh, and uh, have, have a, a grievance process to, to get your job back. So the act protects you, according to the three Republicans out of the five members on the National Labor Relations Board. The act protects you once you get fired. Uh, this is not, you know, I think what uh, uh, Senator Robert Wagner, who was the author of the act in 1935, envisioned 
as adequate protection for workers, but it is exactly where uh, the Republicans on the NLRB, uh, where they're going. You may have noticed that the L.A. Times today had an editorial criticizing this bill that would uh, require that workers who uh, whose work involves fulfilling the mission of the company be classified as employees with minimum wage protection and uh, and benefits. Uh, they said people like the people who deliver the newspaper to your door who are now independent contractors uh, should not be covered by this and, and likely will be. And they also brought up the case of of uh, freelance writers uh, who contribute to the L.A. Times. Uh, they said this would affect them drastically. Now, you you are uh, a regular contributor to the op-ed page, but I doubt that they've classified you as an employee. Uh, where do you stand on this vital question? You know, I was a weekly columnist for the Washington Post for 12 years, and I was never an employee. Uh, I... Uh, uh, column, most columnists, uh, relatively few columnists are on staff. I think the legislation currently says you have to write 35 pieces for yeah. the same publication in the course of a year uh, to qualify as an employee. Now, if the, if the Washington Post came under that, then I would have been an employee. Uh, but uh, the, the main concern of the newspapers, I, is, I think, is, is the delivery people. Uh, uh, that, uh, you know, and particularly like smaller rural papers, uh, just don't, uh, uh, you know, that these are people who work a couple hours a day. Uh, and given the parlous state of, uh, of, of many newspapers, I can kind of understand that argument. So the, the art, the, the Times piece wasn't coming out against the whole bill. It right. Was, it was what a lot of in, different industries are doing right now uh, in terms of saying, well, our independent contractors uh, really are independent contractors, and certainly in a lot of instances, uh, freelance writers are independent contractors, and then in some instances they're not. Uh, but God knows the drivers, Uber, Lyft, etc., cetera, uh, are employees by any other name. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org and the latimes.com, where he's an independent contractor. Thank you, Harold. <laughs> Thank you, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, the problems with Melania. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at, KPFK, <clears throat> streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, educating girls in Afghanistan to become leaders. But first, we need to ask the key question of our time. Is Melania Trump a hero of the people or an accomplice to evil? For that, we turn to our senior Melania correspondent, Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's best known for her award-winning recent book about Haiti, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Soon I'll be known, though, as the Melania correspondent for Start Making Sense, and that will be the pinnacle of my journalistic <laughs> okay. career. Well, I'm very <laughs> glad to hear that. 
You know, the debate over whether Melania is a hero or villain has, for some reason, intensified over the last week or two. Just to set the context here, it's hard for anybody to be the first lady. The first lady is an ornamental role, and it always has been. You're not the elected official. You are simply the spouse unless you have great force of personality, like Eleanor Roosevelt, who is always cited in this way. You end up decorating the White House and uh, talking about children, not that that's unimportant. There have been campaigns against obesity and for organic food and all sorts of good things. But you don't really have a policy role. You're not the elected official. Just remember what happened to Hillary Clinton when she started to espouse health care. First ladies, as you say, are supposed to have projects, causes. Melania's first project was that she was against cyberbullying. Do you think that she noticed that the biggest cyberbully on the planet was her husband? (laughs) I think she noticed. But Trump's continuing return to Twitter as a a method of cyberbullying his opponents and calling them out and beating on them, I think it intensified the public's regard of his cyberbullying, and therefore her program began to seem more and more like it was in contrast to his behavior. And maybe, too, as time went on, she began to think, oh, you know, I really have uh, set myself out on a path against what my husband is doing. Another key moment in the debate over whether Melania is a quiet hero of the resistance was at Trump's State of the Union address where she wore a white pantsuit. Didn't that look a lot like the white pantsuit that Hillary wore when she accepted the Democratic nomination? As a sort of semi-fashion connoisseur, I have to say it didn't really look like it. Like an average person looking at it would say, whoa, that's a white pantsuit, like the white pantsuits Hillary always wears. But in fact, it was a very fashionable, stylish, beautiful pantsuit. (laughs) But it was white, and it was important in that way, unless you think that making, that if your only ability to be articulate in public is through what you're wearing, that that's a sad thing. But it was something. I think it was noticeable. I think it was a commentary. And then uh, more recently, there's been a lot of talk, speculation in the media about Melania wearing something called the pussy bow. What is the pussy bow? The pussy bow, every woman will recognize it, although she might not know the name for it. It makes your uh, blouse, also an old-fashioned word, look just a little more demure. It's got it's a tie around the neck that comes with the blouse, and uh, it ties under the chin like a bow around the neck of a kitty cat. But it was particularly noticeable when Melania wore a kind of rose magenta pussy bow blouse. I can't believe I'm saying those words in public. (laughs) To the second debate uh, during the presidential campaign, right after the tape had emerged of her husband saying, you just grab him by the pussy. So it was seen to be some kind of a comment. Now, I just, again, have to reiterate, it is tragic to have to make all your comments through fashion. You know, it's you're not free. One other potential fashion statement. During the waves of outrage over Trump's practice of separating children from their mothers at the border, Melania was the only member of the Trump administration or family to actually visit 
a detention center for uh, new uh, refugees. But when she left the White House, she was wearing that jacket. What did it say on the back? It said, I really don't care. Do you? That caused a lot of confusion. Is she saying she doesn't care about the refugee children? If so, why is she going to visit them? What What do you make of this? Well, I guess we don't know under what conditions she went. So maybe she's saying, I really don't care about them, but my husband is making me go because no one else will go and I'm the girl and I have to go care about children. But the other, many other options for interpreting this, it's almost like being in French uh, critical theory when you watch (laughs) Melania. Uh The other idea is that this was a message to her husband. I mean, after all, when she turned away, her back was to the White House. Who would be looking out the window? Not that he was, but her husband and saying, I really don't care what you think about my going to visit this shame of your White House. I'm going anyway. And I think one thing to imagine uh, in this marriage is that she married a very different Donald Trump from the one there is today, at least in his policies. He used to seem liberal because he wanted the New York elite to like him. And now he's gone very hard right. And I'm sure that his politics did not have much to do with her decision about whether to marry him or not. But now she's wedded publicly to this person who perhaps she doesn't like what he's doing. That, to me, is the main thing that maybe these signals make. But I, I'm really, how can we know? There's one more intriguing move of Melania's that I want to ask you about. She announced she's going to Africa without him. (laughs) That seems surprising. You know, why Africa? Does she care about Africa? What does Africa mean to her? It seems like she's just making a choice, like, hmm, he doesn't like Africa, I'll go to Africa. Because uh, there were on his list of shithole nations many African countries He's not very good at naming them. I can't remember what he calls Namibia and what he calls Zambia, but he gets them confused. Too many syllables. And he hasn't gone. He's never set foot in Africa. So she's going. And the first time he ever mentioned Africa in a policy context was in the last couple of days when he tweeted about news he had heard that in South Africa, White farmers were being massacred. This turns out to be completely untrue. It's a right Maybe Melania is going to investigate the (laughs) allegations. I imagine she'll go to refugee camps and to uh, starvation centers. And schools for girls. And schools for girls. The usual. (laughs) But, you know, good, good. And I think you have to also take into consideration when you think about the messages she seems to be sending and all the resistors among us think that she's maybe a resistor in hiding, she might be an angry wife. She clearly doesn't like to be touched by the president. Who would? (laughs) But, you know, we've seen all the videos of her batting away his hand and pulling her hand away when he grabs it. And he does it for show, but she doesn't want to be part of the farce. That is my interpretation. Sorry, Mr. and Mrs. President. She has Allegedly, but it doesn't seem very alleged. It seems to be true. A separate bedroom in the White House. Uh, it's even That's even more vivid than on the Dick Van Dyke show with the two beds. Mm. It's another room. And when they travel, she sleeps in another room. And then she was 
taken off to Walter Reed with an unnamed kidney malfunction for five days where we didn't even know what was happening with her. I mean, there are problems in this marriage. There's an allegation that she lives in Maryland to be near her son and she doesn't even live in the White House. So we can't know what goes on in their marriage, but a lot of this may be her way of choosing to express a difference with him in public because she's angry. And who wouldn't be angry with Stormy Daniels, et cetera, in the the mix? And there's... The New York Times style section of all places had a page one huge reported story on Melania by Maggie Haberman and her colleagues. Uh, they they had one fascinating reported fact that Melania watches CNN instead of Fox News. Yes, and her, her people were reduced to saying the First Lady is allowed to watch whatever she wants to watch. But apparently, according to the New York Times style section, he was not too happy. With her watching CNN. He wants her to watch Fox. CNN, of course, is militantly anti-Trump now, in some ways even more so than MSNBC. So if she watches CNN, that's that's something. She's getting an earful. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh... Oh, can I just add one other thing? Please. So Donald Trump says LeBron James is a low IQ person or some such. Oh, so-and-so made LeBron look smart. And that's not easy to do. So Melania goes on and starts praising LeBron's programs with children. So that's what I'm saying. It's a reactive thing. She's pushing back. She is not delighted with him. So the current most active proponent of the view that Melania is a hero of the resistance is the uh, New York Times columnist Frank Bruni, who wrote a couple of days ago, quote, she edges ever closer to open contempt for him. She finds increasingly clever ways to show it. It's a perfect wedding of patriotism and payback for all the humiliations that he has heaped on her, close quote. What do you think of Frank Bruni? You know, when you put it all together, which he did in that piece, it's hard to resist coming to that conclusion, especially the payback thing. Um, But so what does it mean? You know, what good is it for us? It's interesting about Melania and we can feel sorry for her or whatever. She made her choice, you know. She made her bed. She doesn't really sleep in it. (laughs) (laughs) But um, their marriage is in a very tight tough spot. If she doesn't like him one bit, who knows what the prenup is like? And she has a child with him. Is she going to walk out on that? So she's maybe doing her best. We've been talking here for this whole time about Melania as some kind of subtle Trump critic. But of course, there's another view. Melania is not a hero of the people. She's an accomplice of evil. The Times, after that Frank Bruni column appeared, printed comments, 1,688 comments before they closed the comment section. And then they ran two letters. Here's a typical one. Um, Melania Naus chose to marry a racist, crooked boor with a clear history of infidelity and lots of cash. Why do we assume she is somehow captive and protesting? The only valid sign of resistance would be filing for <clears throat> the only valid sign of resistance would be filing for divorce and speaking out. Or, or here's another. What Melania has done, quote, pales in comparison to the workers of Eleanor Roosevelt, both Mrs. Bush's, Hillary Clinton, and Michelle Obama. Melania Trump does not come close. 
I think you have to say that's true. And I believe that filing for divorce would be an incredible and heroic thing. But I don't think that's going to happen. But I think the thing to ask is, you know, people want to accuse her of being kind of a whore because she married for this huge amount of money, someone we think of as not particularly desirable. Okay. But that that isn't so interesting. What's interesting is how much power does a wife have over a man in power? And I would say in this case, she has very little power and she did get one thing out of him. In spite of all the uh, attacks that he's made on chain migration, she got her parents chain migrated <laughs> into U.S. citizens. So you got to say she won a little battle there by perhaps by doing all these things we've seen her do. Amy Willens, our chief Melania correspondent. Amy, thanks so much. Always great to have you on the show. Always fun, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, the future of girls' education in Afghanistan after an American pullout. That's in a minute on KPFK when our program continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, rising up with Sonali. But first, girls' education in Afghanistan. For that, we turn to Shabana Basij Rasik. She was born and raised in Kabul. She's a campaigner for girls' education in Afghanistan and the founder of SOLA, the School of Leadership Afghanistan. It's a nonprofit boarding school in Kabul that educates Afghan girls to become critical thinkers and leaders who understand that they have the power to shape their nation's future. Shabana, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, you grew up under the Taliban, uh, and yet you are educated. Didn't the Taliban prohibit girls from going to school? Uh, that's correct. Um, girls' education was criminalized. Uh, women were not allowed to work outside the home. But uh, I was uh, incredibly fortunate um, to have uh, the parents I do. They're one of the best parents in the world. I can easily <laughs> say that they're okay. my parents. Uh, but really... Uh, uh, they uh, risked their lives um, to educate me and my siblings um, under very extreme circumstances. So tell us about the school you went to. Uh, initially, I was uh, homeschooled by my parents. My mom is an educator herself, um, but uh, my I have an older sister who was old enough, um, and she had to wear a burqa when she went outside. So my parents uh, dressed me up as a boy um, so that I could escort her to and from the secret school. And when I talk about a secret school, um, really, we went to uh, somebody's house. Um, they had turned their living room um, into a classroom and uh, were educating girls uh, really based uh, on one-on-one lessons. So you dressed as a boy to go to school. What about your sisters? What about your female friends? Um, a lot of people uh, came into came, came into the school either from from the area or from the neighborhood. My we came we had a long commute, 
And this was a way of minimizing uh, any kind of attention that we would uh, draw. Um, we al always uh, tried to um, go to the school at different times. So anything that we did, we had to make sure that we did not keep a routine um, because usually routine is associated with school. Uh, t tell me a little bit more about your mother. She obviously uh, grew up before the Taliban. Uh, what kind of education did she get? Uh, interestingly, my mother was the first uh, woman, along with her sisters, um, to be educated. Um, her father, uh, who was a general, uh, decided that his daughters uh, would be educated, for which he was disowned by his uh, family for quite wow. a few years, um, until my mom and her sisters uh, became teachers. Um, and they became teachers much, uh, much younger, um, when they were in 10th grade in high school, because of the dire need uh, for female teachers, even back then, they were offered a teaching position. Um, and as soon as they became teachers, while continuing with their own education, they um, uh, became role models for, for, the, for their extended family members. And, and what about your father? He wanted his daughter to go to school, even under the Taliban, even when it was so dangerous? <laughs> so my father, from a different part of the country, also was the first person in his family to get educated. Oh. So both of my parents uh, have this uh, strong um, appreciation for the power of education and what that can do for any individual. And I think uh, for them... Uh, the risk was there of uh, the risk for our, all of our lives. Um, but for them, the bigger risk uh, was raising us without an education. I think they could not mm -hmm. comprehend the possibility of raising uh, children without an education. For them, that meant undoing so many years of the struggles that they went through to get an education and to normalize that within their own families. And how many women your age in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, the ones who grew up under the Taliban, have gone to school? And how much school have they gone to? Well, at the moment, uh, the statistics show that um, about uh, 30 to 40 percent of uh, school children um, are uh, girls. So we still have a long road ahead of us. That means uh, uh, nearly 70 percent of girls in Afghanistan are not in school today. Uh, but that's obviously a significant change since uh, the Taliban uh, regime. Uh, back then, the number of girls who went to schools and that two secret schools were probably um, in hundreds. Oh. And now it's uh, in millions. Um, but that is uh, still uh, concentrated in uh, cities, um, in Kabul city and other major cities. Um, and as you travel more into the rural parts of Afghanistan, that's where the real challenge is. Uh, girls uh, who are unable to attend uh, school for various reasons. Um, I know that in the U.S. there is a general um, misconception uh, that uh, the number one reason why girls in Afghanistan don't attend school is uh, perhaps uh, traditional views or men who are against uh, girls' education. But really, uh, when I talk about the number one reason, uh, people are really shocked, and uh, that is lack of teachers. Lack and of teachers. Especially lack of female teachers. Mm. Um, that's what prevents girls in most areas in Afghanistan from attending school. So tell us about SOLA, the School of Leadership Afghanistan, which you founded and which you are the head of. 
Um, Sola, like you mentioned earlier, is uh, a boarding school, and it's the first and still the only all-girls boarding school in Afghanistan. Um, we have uh, students representing 26 of the 34 provinces in Afghanistan. So you recruit these students from outside the big city? That's correct. Our our priority and our emphasis is to bring students from rural parts of Afghanistan, what I mentioned earlier, girls from areas in Afghanistan where they otherwise will not have opportunities to continue with their education. And that's another reason why we uh, start our school in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. We bring students uh, when they're rough, roughly 10, 11, or 12 years old, um, and we um, educate them from 6th through 12th grade. Um, given that we uh, recently um, turned our program, which initially was a scholarship program, to a boarding school, um, we have students uh, in grades 6 through ninth, and our very first uh, class that will graduate Sola High School will be in 2022. <laughs> That's exciting. <laughs> it is an exciting possibility. Um, and the fact that it is a boarding school, I can see if you're bringing students from far away, it needs to be a boarding school. But there's one other advantage to being a boarding, boarding school, and that's the security issue. Yes. Um, well, security to an extent, because even as a boarding school, uh, we, we still you know, have that uh, very much as a concern. Although we haven't had uh, any issues, uh, but it's definitely something that we are very mindful of. Um, a lot of the decisions that we make about our daily programming um, is always looked at through a security lens. But if you look at it um, from a generalized view, um, a girl in rural Afghanistan um, may have various uh, obstacles that she faces in terms of going to school. Uh, we are talking about uh, securing permission from male family members to be able to attend school. We're talking about, um, at the very least, uh, verbal harassment, uh, walking to and from school. But in some serious cases, um, as uh, uh, have been documented, um, girls have had acid thrown on their faces for going to school. Uh, we've had um, uh, girls' schools that have received threats for educating girls, um, especially uh, schools that uh, where they have uh, male teachers. Um, we've had uh, girls poisoned uh, in school because they are attending school. Um, and then I mentioned the lack of teachers, um, and in most cases, lack of qualified teachers, well, to give you an example of a province in southern Afghanistan, uh, Paktika province has uh, 3,100 registered teachers with the Ministry of Education uh, of the government. Out of 3,100 teachers, only 16 are women. Oh. Out of the 16 female teachers, only one of them has a high school degree. Mm. Five others have only completed elementary school. Um, so when you look at um, all these obstacles of securing permission, the risk of going walking to and from school on a daily basis, uh, the, the school itself being potentially attacked, and on top of it not having access to qualified teachers, um, and this happening in most rural parts of Afghanistan, the boarding school model becomes such an, an amazing and an obvious solution um, to all of these obstacles that girls face on a day-to-day basis. Well... My friends Mickey and Barbara visited Sola and taught there for a week a while ago. They asked students to write about what they wanted to do in life, and they showed me what some of the different girls wrote. I want to be a teacher. 
I want to be an engineer. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a brain surgeon. And one wrote, I want to be a brave and honest leader of my people. <laughs> that last one really got to me. <laughs> well, we, we have a lot more added to that list. We have uh, many more who want to be presidents of Afghanistan <laughs> and um, astronauts. And those ambitions are really um, there. Uh, you walk into the school, it's a, it's a very small community, but it is dynamic. It's, uh, it's where hope is. Um, and I do, I do strongly believe, I don't say this because they are my students in my school, but uh, you really meet them and you feel, you walk out of uh, Sola feeling so much more confident about the future of Afghanistan. Well, I certainly wish we had students in the United <laughs> States who said, I want to be a brave and honest leader of my people. <laughs> Um, you, you plan to build a new uh, permanent and secure campus in Kabul uh, by, what, three years from now, 2022? Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah that's a very ambitious uh, goal, but I'm confident that we will get there. Uh, this is an amazing opportunity, um, not just for our school, but for, for girls um, and women of Afghanistan, and by extension for uh, girls and women in the region and the world. Um, we have been granted uh, land in central Kabul um, to, to build a permanent campus. Um, and when I look at this, um, Sola, has, Sola is pioneer um, in um, uh, localizing this uh, amazing model of education, and that is the boarding school model. And uh, having a permanent space uh, will obviously give us that uh, ability um, to, to extend our reach beyond this one school. Um, we, our students, when they go home for long winter breaks, um, our academic year runs from March to December, so our students have this long winter break. When they go home, uh, and this is without us prompting, um, they uh, open literacy centers from their home. Um, some of them have gone on to, uh, we have four girls uh, from Helmand province. And this past winter, when they went home, uh, they decided, uh, obviously, in, in the warmer part of the country, the academic year runs from uh, September to June. And so when they went home for winter break, um, the schools in Helmand province uh, were in session. And these four students decided to go to the local public school and become teachers. Mm. And obviously, um, they, they knew the need there because in that public school, the entire school had only four female teachers. So mm. when they went they doubled the number of female teachers. And the word was out that our own Helmandi girls uh, who study in Kabul are back, and they know um, all these various subjects so much better. Mm. And they're teaching, they're offering one-on-one -on -one lessons. Um, the number of students during that two-and-a-half month that they were home doubled in that public school. And they told me that when they were uh, saying goodbye the last day before coming back to Kabul um, to continue with their education, um, that the entire school lined up uh, mm. to say goodbye to them. Wonderful. Um, it's, you know, you see these students already making a massive difference um, yeah. and having that opportunity for us to build a permanent campus. That's something we're really hoping to accelerate um, given uh, the situation in the country. Well, it gives us... yeah. The, the last few minutes we have here, about five minutes left, we need to talk about Afghanistan. After American forces are pulled out, there have been these negotiations going on between the Americans and the Taliban, excluding the Afghans in Qatar. Um, 
what what's your perspective on what the future of girls' education uh, once the United States pulls out, which seems like there will be some kind of pullout pretty soon? Well, um, at this stage, uh, one, it's a little too early to um, really know what how this all of this is going to unfold. But from from what I understand, um, the um, the second part of the negotiations, which is the um, intra-Afghan dialogue, is also very critical. Um, uh, and uh, there is obviously a huge amount of uncertainty, um, both in Afghanistan and and for for a lot of our international allies. Uh, but the one thing that is uh, that is for certain there is that people in Afghanistan are really tired of war. The conversation has already shifted towards a dialogue for peace. Um, this has been ongoing for Afghan people. Uh, well before the appointment of uh, Ambassador Khalilzad in this process. Um, uh, at the end of the day, when you talk, about, when you talk to an ordinary Afghan citizen, um, they will tell you that they're really sick and tired of burying their family members mm-hmm. every day in and day out. Um, the, the support for the elected government of Afghanistan at this stage is super critical. Um, I do believe that Afghans deserve... Uh, to be represented uh, by the government that they have um, uh, elected. And if you have followed the events in Afghanistan, um, people in Afghanistan have risked their lives to vote um, in presidential elections. And I know that they will continue to do that. So it's incredibly important that they are represented uh, by their own government. And that becomes a critical aspect of these negotiations. Um, uh, we know very little about the details of the uh, terms between the U.S. government and the Taliban. Uh, but uh, what is really important is to make sure, um, especially for the U.S. And national security, too, to make sure that the Taliban publicly denounce any relationship or support for um, al-Qaeda and other, any other terrorist groups uh, operating out of Afghanistan, that has to be taken extremely seriously. Um, And um, obviously, this has to go without saying that um, women's uh, rights and uh, the rights of all the minority groups, uh, which form a majority in the the country, has to be respected. Um, It shouldn't be an ask because it already is aligned with American values. Um, And I really hope that Uh, In this process, all of that is taken very seriously. And if our listeners want to find out more about your school, SOLA, in Kabul, where should they look? Uh, We have a wonderful uh, website. Um, I don't say this because it's our website, but a lot of people have um, shared their views on us. Um, It's uh, www.sola-afghanistan.org. sola dash Afghanistan.org. And Sola uh, means peace in Pashto language. Sola means peace in Pashto, and it's an acronym in English, so it works both ways. <laughs> I would say one other thing Shabana also has a TED Talk online, which has more than a million views. That seems <laughs> like a lot to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful platform for sure. <laughs> Shabana, thank you so much for talking with us today, and thank you for everything you do. Thank you for having me back. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. Harold Meyerson did our 
Joe Biden update. Uh, we also spoke with Amy Willens about Melania, hero or villain. Thanks to our engineer today, Lizette Tapia. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rai Cooter for our theme music. Here it comes, Mambo Sinuendo. Stay tuned for Rising Up with Sonali coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK. And if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>